Well, welcome back to Talking True Cases. Today's guest is an expert in the field, Professor Graham Williams. He specializes in DNA profiling, body fluid evidence, clothing damage, and blood stain pattern analysis, all really crucial areas in today's policing and criminal justice system. So where are we with forensic science? We've all seen the coverage in the many crime programs, dramas, documentaries, where DNA plays a very significant role. But can it be relied upon as much as it is? Some of the basics of, of policing, I wonder, are lost. I worry that they're lost because there's so much reliance on forensic science and DNA being the golden bullet. But is it always the golden bullet? Well, so I'm going to ask Graham in relation to some of the work that he's done. And we're going to break down the aspects of DNA, offender profiling, all of those aspects that build up this science which is so crucial for policing today and so crucial in terms of the courts. And one of my worries is, is it misinterpreted? Are there times when actually the police are given results, but in fact they misinterpret those results? And if they're getting it wrong, how can we expect the courts and jurors to interpret forensic science in the correct way? It is open to so much discussion. So I'm very pleased to be joined by Graham. Thank you so much for joining me, Graham. Graham, you are in a world of not exact science because there's lots of interpretation of DNA, isn't there? Yes, yes, it is. Um, one of the things you say about forensic science is um, we're talking the language of science in the legal environment. Uh, like, uh, I'm a science language in a legal um, country, basically. And so one of the challenges we have is how to communicate the science effectively to the courts and to the police indeed in a way that they can understand it without compromising accuracy. And I think that's probably one of the real challenges we have at Defender Scientists. Let's go back to the very beginning, the birth of DNA. DNA, when it was first you know, dreamt up, came up with, you had to get DNA almost the size of a piece of paper. It was huge compared to what it is now. And we have that very significant case of killing of of Colin Pitchforth. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, so this was um, in nineteen around nineteen eighty five, and so it was in Leicester, and so there was um, two two teenage girls who were found um, raped and murdered. So this would be in um, a very serious investigation. And around that time, at the University of Leicester, there was um, Alex Jeffries, now Professor Sir Alex Jeffries who um, came up with the concept of DNA profiling. And as I understand it, he came up with this idea because he noticed he did, he'd working on bits of DNA and he had various people giving samples and he noticed that people who were related had very similar band patterns. And then he realised that, oh, actually, it looked like people have different profiles and look like there's relations and relations between the two. And as I heard it, he was um, simply talking to his wife over the... Uh, down in the room table, and his wife worked for the Immigration and Nationality Directorate. And then, oh, yeah, we could use that in some of our um, asylum cases where we're not quite sure whether the child belonged to the to the parents. And so, and so that kind of got the ball rolling where he um, made it available to the police that this was something they could do. And so they had, so in that case, they were able to obtain semen from, from both of the deceased. And all you could do at the time was decrease the status. So all they could say whether the person was O positive, AB negative, the blood types. And that was about all they could do. And it's not very discriminating at all. 
they were half the population is O positive, so that didn't really help. And so they knew this technique. So. No, go on, carry on, carry on. Yeah. Um, so they got the cover team and they realised they could do DNA. And so and so they started doing this. They had to do all sorts of novel um, techniques. So they had to do um, extraction. Because if you recover steam from the vaginal cavity, most of the DNA is going to be from the woman. So they have to come up with a system to break away, to break down you know, like the vaginal component of the swab and make sure that all that's left is the matter So they then got a DNA profile. But then the issue then was who to compare it with. So at that point, they didn't have a suspect or they had with a DNA profile. And so, one, so this was the first time a DNA profile was obtained in a criminal case. And um, it was also the first time that they did a massive DNA screen. So they reached out to the population and, um, and asked males to come forward and donate um, a DNA sample, whether it be blood or mouse swab, for comparison. So they did this ma- massive screen. And Colin Pitchfork actually managed to get away with it in the first one. And it was only through someone over him in the pub bragging about how he managed to pull one over, wool over the police's eye, they went back to him. But he got his sample and the match, they got a DNA match. And so his DNA was found on, on the body of these two girls and he was convicted. And that was the first case in the entire world of someone being convicted by, by DNA. And that was Colin Pittsburgh in 1985. Brilliant. So tell me how, how is DNA made? Why is it uh, unique? Why is it unique? Well, well, actually, it's thought to be unique. And uh, something like about 90, 95%, even up to 99% of our DNA is identical. Um, but within the DNA, there are variations, and obviously variation feed into uh, genetic makeup. But within that, there's um, hypervariable regions, and that, what it means is regions just change quite a bit, and it varies between individuals. And so it is thought that the, the combination of all those is thought to be unique, but we've never actually been able to demonstrate that. But what we can say is that... Uh, um, the chance of two people having the same DNA profile is one in a billion. So, for example, um, identical twins have the same DNA profile. Okay. If you've got lots of brothers and sisters, the chance of two people having the same DNA profile increases. And so there could be plenty of people out there in the world who've got the same DNA profile as you through um, just through relation or through accidental matches. Um, so it's not thought to be unique, but thought to be very, very highly discriminating. So that so the highest probability you can get for DNA is one in a billion. Well, it's actually um, higher than that. So my DNA profile is something like one in two hundred and forty trillion. So the chance of somebody out there having the same DNA profile as me, assuming that they're all unrelated, is one in two hundred and forty trillion. Why? Why? Well, basically, what we do is what we ask is if we look at one particular marker in the DNA. And they would say, how common is that market in the population? And so what we do, we get a sample population from um, from a similar makeup to the country that you're in. And so you may get a thousand, so a thousand people. And then you just see how many times that particular market is present in the population. And it might be something like 2% on the probability of somebody else having that market is 0.02. But we target, if you target two markers at the same time, and they're both 2%, so 2% of 2% is 0.04%. And so if you've got three markers, it can be something like 0.0008%. Right. So outcome DNA profiling 
targets 15 markers and they go 0.2 times 0.2 times 0.2 so 15 you end up with something like 0.0000000 um a larger number of zero before you get one to get a very small number now and so we can get it very discriminating so the more markers we use the more discrimination your dna profile is so when we first started using the national dna database we had stitch markers and that was called SGM, or second generation multiplayer. That was in 1995. And then in the early 2000s, or nine, late 1990, we moved up to SGM Plus. So that's 10 markers. And then in 2014, in the UK, we moved up to something called the European Standard Step. And that's 15 markers plus um, a theft indicator. And now, the rest of the world, or most of the rest of the world, use 24 markers and using something called Global Filer. So the UK is not yet using the most up-to-date DNA profiling system, so we're still using 15 markers, whereas the rest of the world, and Scotland, for example, use um, 24 markers, so their profiles are a lot more discriminating in England and Wales. And why is that? Why are we only on 15, whereas other countries are 24? Mainly because the cost and the time involved right. in upgrading so when we um, moved from SGM to SGM Plus, the National DNA Database was made up of SGM profiles that so the Home Office had to pay millions of pounds to get all the profiles upgraded to compare with SGM Plus. And then when we move on to the DNA 17 or the DNA 15 markers, mm. again, it's all about upgrading and it's all about validating. And by the time we got through to that process, and by, by the time we got through to the sort of, yes, OK, we can use this now, we'd moved on. So it's our internal processes for embracing technology and getting technology into practice is quite slow. So I think as a sector, I think vendor time can be a bit resistant to change. And probability, does probability change if with ethnicity or country? Um, if you've got a full DNA profile, then no, not really. Right. Um, some some markers can be more common in some ethnicities than others. But if you've got a full DNA profile, the difference between the two is very little. So I said um, we had a mass flow rate of one in a billion, where in fact mine was something like 240 trillion. One of the problems with that is because when it goes to court and we say to the jury it's one in 240 trillion, they read, well, there's 8 billion people in the world, therefore it must be unique. And that's not true. So there's been sort of um, recommendation that we cap it at one in a billion. Um, so when we say one in a billion, we actually realise that any variation between ethnicities makes no difference. If we do have a partial profile, so we have a weak profile, and we start, might start quoting something like maybe one in, in 50,000, it may be something like one in 100,000 in a different ethnicity. But what we can do then, if we know the ethnicity of the offender and we know the ethnicity of the suspect, we can limit our population sample database just to that ethnicity. And we do find that that's more accurate than using a global um, global database. So when the terminology of full data uh, DNA profile has been obtained, that could be slightly misleading because it could be in relation to the 15 that we run or in relation to the 24 that other countries run. That's a, that's a very good point. Yes, it could be. So when we say full DNA profile, we tend to mean this is the best profile we get. But actually, yeah, you're right. So if we have a DNA profile one in 24 and you run the same sample here with 15 uh, markers, then that will be a partial profile of the 24. So it could be um, potentially misleading, yeah. But 
I don't think, I can't see how that would have an impact in a court, really, because I think a partial profile is still evidential standards. So if you've got the 15 market, we only get 10, but we're able to get more than a, a matter of basically one in a billion. We would still report it one in a billion. So the fact that we've got some market dropout, we tend to find that sometimes it might not make that much difference. So I don't think it made that much difference in the end. What would be the minimum standard expected by a court of a of a partial profile with markers? I that I think that would be um, on a case by case basis, really. Um, I think it's a lot of it tied into the general admissibility of DNA evidence. There'd be questions around, um, you know, why why is it a partial profile? Would we expect a partial profile? So do we expect it to be redistributed? A very small sample that's degraded. They might might be lucky to get um, um, that that partial profile. And this is all and, about how key that profile is to the case in general. So if it's not important to the case, then it probably wouldn't be included. If it's critical, and then it probably will be. So yeah, so I don't think there's any minimum standard. It's certainly a standard we would take to report it in a witness statement. But whether to accept it in court, it um, depends on the court on the day basically. And how has DNA advanced in terms of the collection? So initially, DNA was required to be a lot bigger than what it is now. You can't even see some of the DNA collection now. Yes, absolutely. So I think in 1985, when it was new, we needed um, a significant amount of um, DNA sample. So something like steam, steam being deposited inside a vaginal cavity would be a lot of DNA. So things like a single sperm cell is basically a DNA bullet. The fact you've got millions of sperm cells, the amount of DNA there is bad. So that is easy. That's quite easy. Something like touch DNA. So touch DNA, somebody when you've got an object, somebody touches it, you might transfer some cell, then we wouldn't do it. But as the technology got advanced, we have to think a bit more carefully about where we recover DNA from. So for example, if you've got blood on a on a surface and we and we swab it, in the past we would just swab and really try and get at it. And we might pick up some DNA underneath, but we wouldn't expect to detect that. Now, we kind of have to be careful. So if we're swabbing the blood, we just make sure we just take the top layer off and we're not right. reaching due to the bottom. So we do need to be careful. And how does DNA degrade? How does it degrade? Um, well, the number of factors that affect the rate of degradation. <coughs> so, for example, a hot environment and a humid environment will encourage degradation. And so what we tend to find is tend to chop DNA up and then the larger fragments of DNA tend to break down first. Because so the number of factors that degrade, the first one is our internal factors. So if a cell did not, so once the cell had been cut off from its supply, it undergoes um, something called apoptosis, which is a, it's a way the cell kills itself to become cancerous. And so we've got its internal process that starts to chop itself up. And then externally, we have other factors coming in. So we can have things like bacteria coming in and start degrading it down. And then as we decompose, we could get somebody, we form um, various acids and they start to, to break down as well. <coughs> so it tends to be um, the larger DNA molecule tend to degrade quicker than smaller ones, because the larger DNA molecule have more targets for various, um, various factors. That's a very important case that we will be covering very shortly on our podcast, which is the murder of Nicola Payne. 
or one of those uh, or the individuals that were brought to court in relation to it who were found not guilty and acquitted. But one of the strong pieces of evidence that was considered was in relation to a hair fibre uh, and DNA. One of the points that was raised at court, which was a strong element of them being acquitted, was the aspect of cross-contamination. Now, I'm not going to talk in specifically in relation to that case, but open it up into the broader terms. Cross-contamination is always an issue in relation to forensic science and in particular in relation to hairs and fibres. Just give me the concept of cross-contamination. Uh, basically, cross-contamination is where evidence can be transferred from one item to another. So let's say, for example, we've got um, um, a murder and someone's being strangled, so you've got the victim and then you've got a suspect. And the strangling is you get two people coming into contact together. So that contact while they're strangling is the evidential contact. So that's what we want to try and find. However, if you were to take clothing from the victim, take clothing from the suspect, rub them together, fibres from the victim will transfer to the suspect and vice versa. <coughs> so that's cross-contamination. And it's quite easy to do. However, we do put in very vigorous processes to ensure that that doesn't happen. Um, so, and I think a big part of what we do in terms of defender scientists is to demonstrate to the court that the result that we've got reflects what actually happened. It is not a result of contamination. So, if the question is asked in court, how do you know this is not cross contamination? Then, what I can do, I can show them continuity of items, but I can show that the two items had never come together. And we can go through a lot of measures to do this. So, for example, the people dealing with the victim, so taking the clothing from the victim, the police officer would not come into contact with the police officers who's um, arrested a suspect, interviewing a suspect. And that has to be demonstrated through audit logs and records and things like that. And you can't have the people in the same in the same police car and you can't have them in the same station. And then when we get to the lab, we've got to show that the items are being examined in different laboratories by different people, different times and different days. And we've got to show that that possibility of crop contamination could not happen. So if you find a, a hair or a fibre from an item, you've got to, how can you say that that didn't come from the examiner item before? Now, all we have to do is say, well, I examined this item first. I hadn't examined that item yet. Or they've been examined on different benches by different people who've not come into contact. And so it's about showing that crop contamination could not have occurred in that particular situation. And, and I think one of the things we do with crop contamination, we're always finding new ways for crop contamination to occur. So it's something that we always have to keep on top of and something that we always happen to be mindful of, because it is, especially as our ability detected to become more and more sensitive, we start being able to pick up background levels that we weren't able to before. Now, one of the cases that many people will know who follow our channel is the murder of Jill Dando. Barry George was convicted of that and in later time through an appeal acquitted <coughs> of that conviction. But one of the cases or one of the elements of that case was low copy number DNA of transfer in relation to gunshot particles. Uh, and eventually that got him acquitted. And one of the points that came out very clearly from court is that that should never have been considered to the strength that it was. Low copy number is problematic, isn't it? Yeah, uh, the low copy number DNA and gunshot residues um, have um, similar issues in that they're, they're not visible. So low copy number, um, also referred to as um, LTN, relates to a particular technique 
um, about analysing trace DNA. And what we're talking about is very small amount of DNA that can be from touch. If I touch something, it can be DNA that's found in a fingerprint. And so that can um, be quite a small amount. But the thing is, if I've got DNA on a, on a surface, it didn't necessarily mean that I came into contact with it. So let's say I've got DNA on my hand and I shake somebody's hand and now I've got DNA on, on the other hand and then I go and touch an object. I could have DNA from the first person on that object via me from shaking hands. So one of the problems with the low-shake low DNA or low-copy DNA is that um, how it got there is really difficult to be sure of. Um, so I think that's one of the problems. So sometimes people say, look, you've got the DNA there, therefore you must have touched it. But when it comes to low-shake DNA, we can't say that. All we can say no. is DNA is there, um, but we can't really attach any significance to that. And body fluids, body fluids, of course, come in many different uh, guises. We talk in terms of semen very clearly being very significant in many cases, particularly sexual offences. But there are many, many other body fluids. You know, and um, blood often becomes a very significant part. How strong are the elements of body fluids? Um, well, I think they're very, very strong. I mean, being able to say what the body fluids are, crucial. as you mentioned, semen. So if we get a DNA profile and we can't say it came from the semen, then how can that person be convicted of rape if we can't say DNA came from the semen? So it's absolutely crucial, that body fluid element. It's not just about trying to find a source for DNA, but to trying to attach it significant. And the same with, with, with blood. So if you've got a fight between two friends, um, you may find DNA on them just from being friends, just you know, coming to contact with you, just shaking hands, just being there. But they had a fight and one, one of the friends beats the other one off. Finding the victim's blood on the suspect becomes much more significant rather than just, say, just DNA in general. So if you can say that the DNA came from the blood, that is much more significant in the court of law than just saying his DNA. And one particular body fluid where it's a challenge is vagina material. And so this is common in um, sexual assault, so not just... So we can look at penile swab, so if someone had that intercourse, there would be vaginal epithelial cells on the penis, so we can swab the penis and see if that came from the victim. Um, can be on, if someone wearing a condom, you can swab the outside of the condom to see the epithelial cells um, from the victim as well as steaming inside the condom. And probably one of the more common non-racetestory assault is digital penetration, where somebody inserts their fingers, yeah. and what you can get is vagina material under the fingernails. So what we can do is take fingernail scraping and DNA profile. So vaginal material, vaginal fluid, is a very common body fluid encountered in sexual assault. But one of the problems we have is we can't actually detect it. Or at least we can't detect it in the UK yet. Uh, so all we can do is say the DNA from the victim is under the fingernails, but is it from the vaginal material, or is it from saliva, or the skin cells? So if you share a house with somebody, how likely do you think it is that you've got DNA from that, the person you share a house with under your fingernails? And I don't mean just from scratching, just from touching, just generally. And we don't really know. But we don't know what the chances are of having DNA from somebody else under their fingernails, just in general terms, with background levels. But if we say, so if I've got, so if you've got two people who are sharing a house and one got really drunk and passed it out and the other one is digitally penetrated and you've got DNA under their fingernails, if we can't say it came from vagina material, we can't. They can't be convicted. And I'm aware of a number of cases that have not proceeded a trial because of that issue. Because 
we don't know where the DNA came from, so we couldn't identify the body fluid. Why is that? Are you saying other countries have developed so that they do know what vaginal fluid is, but we just the technology? Yet? Yes, the technology exists. So the technology exists. Um, it's a, it's a, test, a technology that I have in my lab. Um, so it's a technology I've had in my lab for a few years now. Um, the Netherlands would use it in case work. New Zealand would use it in case work. And I'm aware of some other countries having it, but I don't know if it's used in case work yet. But I think in, in Britain, or certainly in England and Wales, we're a long way from doing that. And when I speak to various people within friends of time providers, they're not aware that we can do this. All they know is that they can't do it, but they, they're not aware that the technology in general exists. And I think that um, reflective of the way the friends of time sector within the UK is at the moment. And let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, when I was in the police service, we had the brilliant forensic science service at Lambert, which we would often visit. I remember many, many times going up there, taking a ticket, sitting down uh, and handing over whatever the the material, the evidence I had to be examined by the forensic science service. Of course, they no longer exist. It's now all been privatised and set out. Do you think that's been detrimental to the criminal justice system? Uh, yes. Um, absolutely. Speaking of someone who was in the FSS, in the Lambeth lab. Um, oh, Lambeth you, you were there, were you? I was there but, um, between 2002 and 2007. So I was there when it changed from a Home Office Executive Agency to a government-owned company. And I left just before it all started um, shutting down. So I probably one of the first back to leave a sinking ship, as it were. Um, but it was, um, so I've seen the change. It went from the service you were probably used to. We had them. Um, a one-stop shop of friends. It was friends. brilliant. He came, yeah, brilliant. He came in with the case, gave it to us, and then and then we would discuss with you what we want to do, what you do. We come up with a strategy, and you sign off on that, and we give you a quote. Let's like, how much it's going to cost, and you sign off on that as well. Uh, and we do, and we write a report, and we will. Now, if you wanted DNA, one person would do. It, you want to buy one? It was all a one-stop shop. It was great. But since um, the privatisation, um. What happened is a lot of people had had to tender out for offender services. They went out to what was probably the most cost effective. And a lot of companies set up, a lot of companies closed down, a lot of vendor branches moving around, and we ended up with a big fragmentation. And um, so what we ended up with is if you want your DNA done, you have to send some DNA to one lab. If you want to buy a video, you have to send that to another lab. If you want to fingerprint doing the professional recovery, that has to be either done in house or sent off to a third lab. And so it ended up being quite fragmented. And I think, and I think as a result of that, some discipline kind of dropped off a bit. So, for example, fibres is getting a bit of a challenge at the moment. It could be a skills gap is being generated in fibres yeah. because fibres is not cost effective. Fibres, fibres analysis is time consuming and expensive and it's not great profit. So people are looking to offer that. And the people who are fibre desperate and are retiring, and there's nobody coming in to um, replace them. Because in a few years' time, we may have to have a real issue with finding someone who can do fibre work. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I might be slightly biased here because I was FSS myself, but um, it's um, yeah, I do think well, it's been I, called I'm a big problem. I'm incredibly biased. I was a I was a user of the service, and I think that they were brilliant compared to you know what exists now. And I talked to police officers. 
up and down the country and it, it is a real demand upon them having to you know externally source that and, and get it right and there are some brilliant laboratories out there don't get me wrong there are some brilliant ones but it's it's obviously all very cost uh, driven now yeah. and and as a result of that sadly the services are not always as good as they are let's talk a little bit about interpretation interpretation is a very big area of course it's down to the interpretation of the scientists in the first place but then down to how that is interpreted to the police officer through the courts and ultimately by the jury and of course jury is so important because if they don't understand if they haven't interpreted it correctly that could result in either an innocent man going to jail, an innocent person going to jail, or a guilty person walking free. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, interpretation is absolutely vital. Uh, I think sometimes, I think people misunderstand the role of the offender scientist. I'll say what makes offender scientists offender scientists is the ability to interpret. Uh, I mean, anyone with who's got science, who's by training, can produce a DNA profile and can produce the result. Anyone can date a DNA profile match with Jay Blog with just a, a few weeks training. But to really understand what that means, that's where offender scientists comes in. And I think offender scientists are completely being underutilized. They've got all these incredibly highly trained offender scientists just not being used effectively by the police, by the police and by the courts. And so and part of that is all cost cutting exercises, part of that misunderstanding roles. And so but broadly what it is, is yes, you have a DNA profile matching that Jay Bloggs. Did that mean he didn't? No, it doesn't. Um, but what means is this. So if I find semen from um, say Joe Bloggs on the on the on the high vaginal swab from a rape victim, does that mean that Joe Bloggs raped him? And it's um, on basic interpretation, well yes. And they're like, actually no. So who is Joe Bloggs a victim? If he's her husband, then mm. that means nothing. If he's someone who they had a, a one-night sandwich one week ago. Would you still expect to find your steaming still there? And you just might just about. And but also, it didn't mean rape, because what makes rape rape is a lack of consent. So all we can say is that he'd had sexual intercourse with her. So it didn't make it rape. So it's just, it's just yeah. the stages from a DNA profile you have to work up to, to the offence. They record it the hierarchy of propositions. And, and what tends to happen is sometimes you jump from the result to guilty or not guilty, and actually the number of steps along the way. And um, so the, the police can be guilty of this, but I think um, that might be a little bit unfair on the police, because as you say in the past, it's a, we, we, we need to be the one-stop shop for the offenders, but now the police are having to do some of this interpretation themselves. And they, in all due respect, they don't have the training, they don't have the same no. years of doing cases, cases like this that we do. And then, as you say, when it goes to court, it's not probably not presented in the way that we would and so one of the like the Barry George case with uh, Major Jill Dando with a complete misunderstanding of the gunshot residue. And so he convicted on the single speck of gunshot residue. Said, oh, that's really significant. He got a gunshot residue in his pocket, therefore he must have fired a gun. And that gun must have been the one that shot Jill Dando. But what you've got to ask yourself then is what's the background level of gunshot residue? So would there be any gunshot residue on you? Would there be any on me? You've got to ask the question is, have we ever fired a gun? Legitimately or illegitimately, um, I'm yes. not going to ask any questions on that. But uh, but even if you haven't fired a gun, had a person you sat next to you on the bus fired a gun, yeah. and so if they have and you're sat next to them, you're born going to have gunshot residue on you, even though you've never come anywhere near a gun in your life. Now, as I understand it, Barry George was a member of the Territorial Army, 
And I think he got kicked out by the time then, but he had a territorial army jacket on. So I would expect there to be gunshot residue. So the single speck of gunshot residue in his pocket meant nothing at all. And that's no. what interpretation is. So I think it was just a complete lack of interpretation in that particular case. Yeah, and, and Barry's position, and we've done a lot of work on it, but Barry's position was that on that morning, he says that police officers with firearms turned up to search his address uh, or to secure the address and search it, which would be uh, a normal thing to do, given the fact that they were going after a suspect who is alleged to have shot and murdered somebody. Why wouldn't firearms officers turn up to secure the scene and arrest him prior to the search taking place? So I think yeah. he has a very valid point there and certainly gunshot residue transfer is a very realistic possibility there. The police, Metropolitan Police deny that firearms officers turned up at the scene um, but yeah, I think the evidence is, is pretty strong to suggest that they probably did. Yeah. Moving on to blood stain pattern analysis. Now, this is really crucial. We, we did an investigation in relation to uh, a young lady who went to jail for murder. And blood pattern analysis was a very strong part of Mindy Sangira's case. Uh, that She says that there wasn't enough blood pattern, uh, pattern there to, to, to form the opinion that she committed the murder. It, it is not an exact science blood path analysis but there are some strong elements to it aren't there yeah so blood stain pattern analysis or bpa is basically looking at the pattern to perform an opinion on the actions of created patterns so blood behaves in a very predictable way there are some variation but largely you get recognizable patterns so if you get blood on the surface and you hit it it creates an impact pattern which is very um, distinguishable um but yeah it can be quite subjective so sometimes it's about recognizing patterns and seeing patterns and so that can be a bit um quite subjective it's like seeing you see patterns in the clouds same thing we look at the blood stain pattern you might see it's a handprint but it's not it's just the way the clothes is folded um and things like that but there are some very very strong elements to bpa and probably the most crucial bit is the ability to differentiate airborne blood so that is blood that's been projected to the air and landed on the surface and contact blood, though in the word blood as a result of direct contact. And so I know of a case where someone was convicted based on a single speck of blood of about a one millimetre in diameter landed on the jeans. And that was because for it to be round, it has to travel through the air. And for it to travel through the air, that person must have been there when blood was travelling through the air. Now, the person in question said he was nowhere near the scene and did not know the person in question. He denied categorically, denied everything. And the court said, well, blood had clearly travelled through the air, which came from the victim and landed on your gene. So how did that get there unless you're lying? And so that's the way the court interpreted that. It's just a one millimetre diameter drop of blood on, on someone's genes. That's very interesting. So break that down to me. So if blood travels through the air, it travels in a in a round circular motion. What other patterns are there? Well, if blood um, if blood travels through the air and it lands on the surface, if it's dropping straight down and landed 90 degrees to the surface, it's perfectly round. But if it drops at an angle, so hitting like that, it tends to elongate. So the length is longer than the width, and they get longer. And at certain angles, you start getting way cast off. And so you get like a little drop at the bottom. So you get like almost like an exclamation mark. And and you only get those if the blood is travelled through the air. So if you see something like a blood drop or even an angled blood drop with way cast off, it has to have gone through the air. You cannot get that from contact. And so quite essentially you get a very uniform, neat 
and shake right. you get that so, con so, so contact blood is like probably we've all seen ends up being smudged yeah smudged smeared and so on and so interestingly people do think that the airborne blood is more significant and it can be but it's actually the contact blood is more significant because the contact blood means the two people must have come into contact with each other but that's yeah. to happen where airborne blood they've done being beaten up in front of me and i'm not anywhere near it i can get airborne blood on me but if i'm doing the beating up i'll get airborne and i will get contact so in that case the airborne blood didn't mean anything but the contact change put me in direct contact with with the victim and that um did not put me in a good light in, in terms of the police now you've written a very fascinating paper which is called science that could revolutionize time measurements in forensic investigations one of the elements that i've picked out which is um the wound analysis so wound age just talk that through to me yes absolutely so uh, the, the time aspect of the investigation is probably one of the next big challenges in forensic science so uh, we can say who there and we can say how it got there to a certain extent but one of the questions is, is when uh, and there's always the most common question so I, I send them a witness statement to a police officer and saying he found DNA matching Joe blah 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 and they come back and say oh that's really good but can you say when because and I said, no I can't and that's a question you've got to ask a lot so the time aspect is something I want to look at and so one of the things that we can um, do is what different time aspects are and one of which is wound age and uh, a story I like to use for this example is Murder on the Orient Express. Now, I apologise for any of those who haven't seen it, but it's ended up with basically 12 suspects, and it turns out that all 12 stabbed him. And so the wish of the stabbing killed that person. So wound age analysis is about saying which of the wound came first. Are the wound pre-mortem, peri-mortem, or post-mortem? And if you've got multiple wounds, can we sequence the wounds in the order they were inflicted and one of the things we how to do this what we want to do is sample the edge of the wounds and look at the healing process so once something's been cut the body starts a healing process and the number of stages you've got an immediate clotting stage <coughs> and then you've got further stages and so which means you get changes in expression of the genes at the wound site and they can change within minutes and hours so what we want to do is get them locking the expression pattern at that time then we could measure it and say this wound happened less than 24 hours ago or this wound um, happened before this wound or the person was still alive when this wound was inflicted and one of the important where uh, this is news is um child abuse cases um because in something like double hematomas where and children young children get injured all the time they're always constantly bumped in bruises but there are suspicious patterns that you get lots of bruises occurring over a long period of time want to try and look at and see if we can age those bruises and say did that person die because of that particular bruise there or is that bruise uh, just innocuous or is it actually no no more sinister means behind it and that kind of thing so being able to say how old those wounds are and how frequent together they come and that sort of thing really could really help with a death investigation now one of the massive challenges that we face now is artificial intelligence fake news lies but through artificial intelligence it's caught the certainly the academic world with uh, the impact of 
uh, I think it's GGI and, and all of those uh, elements of artificial intelligence. And it actually now, I worry, can hit and can impact on the criminal justice system. What if somebody creates artificial intelligence to actually make up evidence, evidence that's not true, but it's just literally made up. And what we now know, of course, through uh, through chat GTP and those types of artificial intelligence, it is brilliantly accurate in terms of how it looks, how it presents itself. I think we've seen in the recent days how uh, a foreign news network even had a, you know, uh, an artificial intelligence newsreader uh, reading. So it is taking it's coming into our lives and, and I worry that it uh, it can have such a huge impact. Have you started to see artificial intelligence or are there elements in terms of the work that you're doing and the colleagues you speak to where there is perhaps a fear of this coming in? Um, I think. I think with any new technology, I mean, I think the artificial intelligence is incredibly powerful, but like any technology can be abused, it can also be a benefit. Um, so, yes, I think I share some of the concerns that the artificial intelligence could be abused massively. But I think it's about recognising what the artificial intelligence can do, which can be really difficult to keep ahead of. Um, so, one of the, the, the example in the academic world, um, we recognise that people are using ChatGTP to write their essays. So, we have to do is put in um, the title of their essay and it's produced um, 3,000 words or how many words you asked it for. Um, but now we know the student can do that. We can look at it and we can actually learn patterns from chat GPT. So I've looked at them myself and I think I can recognise patterns when it's being used. Right. Um, but in terms of the fringes, I've not seen any evidence of AI being used for nefarious means just yet. I'm sure that it's um, cases in digital fringes, which is well outside my area of expertise. But where artificial intelligence potentially impacting us is interpreting evidence mm. and perhaps making our lives easier and using artificial intelligence as a tool. So, for example, one of my PhD students um, is doing a PhD in the use of artificial intelligence for pattern recognition um, in bloodstain pattern analysis. And so we've been using um, artificial intelligence generated by Microsoft. Um, what you do is pattern recognition. So what you do, you put in a load of images. So what we do is put in images of airborne versus contact. And then on the images, we say, this is airborne, this is contact. And then we train the AI to recognise him. And then we give it an unknown and say that this thing looks more like airborne than it looks like contact. And it gives you the percentage confidence. Uh, so that's actually really quite useful. Mm. Uh, so that's been um, quite good. But then... The question then is, how much do we trust that? And part yeah. of the problem that with part of the problem with artificial intelligence, we don't know how it came to that decision. And so it's very much like me going to court and said, right, um, Joe Blog did it. How do you know? Just trust me, I'm a friend of that Joe Blog did it. That would never be accepted in court, and quite rightly. Um, and it's the same with AI. So you put a question into AI, gives it an answer. How did it come up with that answer? And we don't necessarily know. So we could use AI or machine learning for investigative purposes. You know, they could try and use to identify a suspect. But I suspect it'd be a very, very long time before it could be used in court. Because I think one of the important things in court is a human that gives evidence. I'm not sure how the court would appreciate an AI or artificial intelligence giving evidence. And okay. um, so I certainly wouldn't like to be convicted um, based on AI um, testimonial. Absolutely not. So, Graham, 
fascinating chat. We could talk all day. But but what's around the corner? What's the next advances in forensic science that we should be looking out for or being worked on? I think I think what's coming up with um, the better the better appreciation that um, interpretation needs working on. And I think there's a better appreciation about how we communicate the results to the jury and how the jury understands it. Um, so I know there's um, a few research calls out for funding to explore things like DNA transfer and persistency. So if DNA is there, how likely is it there from direct transfer or how likely has it been moved around? And, and a lot of research looking around the interpretation things. So I think there's a lot more focus going on about how the evidence got there, um, which is famous overdue. And as we just talked about, is the um, use of artificial intelligence and forensic science as, as a tool, a company that's coming forward. And I think one of the things that we'd like to see to be looked at is the temporal aspect of how long could the DNA be now? Is the, is the blood fresh or is it old? Um, how how long has that body been there for? Um, and I think they're um, quite crucial questions that have yet to be answered. And Graham, at your university, are you seeing an increase in popularity in relation to the courses that you're running as a result of the the genre now that populates both social media platforms and the normal terrestrial TV? Um, I'd probably say it's quite stable. I mean, we tend to get quite healthy um, student numbers. I think we get plenty of students um, across the sector. Uh, I think it's, um, we get a healthy population that's actually quite stable, not in particular decline or particular increase in uh, student interest. But yeah, there's always been a steady healthy interest there. I think certainly the um, social media and all the uh, the TSI programmes have certainly helped keep the interest up. And do you watch crime programmes on TV? Uh, um, no. Um, I don't, I don't watch programmes that are forensic science orientated because normally after about 10 minutes I'm just very quickly to the screen. Um, <laughs> but I do like to watch some um, crime programmes. I do like a nice stereo killer documentary. And I do like um, police procedurals, you know, the whole 24 hours in police custody and things like that. Um, but yeah, I do, um, my wife did um, ask you how to put a hand on my leg and say, it's only a TV programme, Graham, calm down. And, you get very uh, involved and uh, in procedurally wise. Yes. Uh, yeah, oh, we wouldn't do it like that. Oh, no, that's just wrong. Oh, can't believe they do it like that. Who's a technical advisor on this programme? <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, listen, it's fantastic talking to you. You do a sterling job. Uh, you look after yourselves. Uh, this podcast will go out, and I'm sure that there'll be people who are very fascinated in, in this area. And uh, it is we, we need people like you. We need people who continue to take up the baton and move forward. And I very much hope that your worry around fibre experts who doesn't come to fruition. I fear that you are probably absolutely right that it will do. But we need to spend as much time as possible making sure that we support those forensic sciences that are crucial to the criminal justice system. I think we have to always remember that the criminal justice system is multi-layered and it isn't just forensic science that enables individuals to be caught and to be prosecuted. It's a very, very useful tool. But what we mustn't forget is how crucial it is for police officers to do the basics, to do the feet on the ground, those elements which enable them to collect that evidence supported by the fantastic tools that are brought to them 
by the forensic scientists out there who are doing an amazing job in safeguarding you and I every day. So thank you very much, Graeme. Look after yourself and take yeah, care. Thank you. You too. Okay, then. Bye now. Take care. Thank you. So that was another version of True Cases. A fascinating insight. I always find that talking to individuals, experts like Graham, uh, that they bring so much to the party. They are so passionate about the work that they do. They're so careful in terms of making sure that their results are interpreted correctly and rightfully so, because what they say may end up putting someone in jail. And of course, everybody in jail, we want to be in jail for the right reasons, not for the wrong reasons. And of course, sometimes, sadly, forensic science does get it wrong, not just blaming them. It's sometimes the criminal justice system through the police or the courts themselves or simply the jury. We have the best jury system in the world, I believe, but sometimes they get it wrong as well. So if you are interested, you can follow Graham through the many platforms that he has. He writes numbers of articles. They are very, very interesting. So do check them out. And thank you very much to him and to you for following. And we'll see you next week.